0: you would take your Bibles this morning and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Gospel of Luke chapter 12 with me here. I do you want to say thank you to the band? It is uh, wonderful. It's a blessing to see people use their gifts and abilities and want to do that. and um, It's just a, a joy to witness and a, a privilege Something I'm very thankful for. So thank you guys for doing that. Luke chapter 12. We find ourselves in verse 13 this morning. Going through the majority of the chapter through verse 34. Now, I know people would disagree with me, but I think one of the greatest blessings given to us as uh, humanity is creation itself in the sense of nature. I think nature is one of the great blessings of God. I know a lot of people, in fact, I have several friends who hate nature. They hate being outside. They fear critters and bugs and humidity and whatever else. But really, when you think about it, I think it is one of the greatest blessings that we get to behold and be a part of. Because creation so significantly displays beautiful attributes of God. Nature itself shows us the magnitude of God and the diversity of things that exist in nature, plant life and animal life and and uh, water and dirt and and all kinds of things. And, And the uniqueness of all of them shows God is magnificent, he's powerful, he's huge. Because he spoke all those things into existence and and the Bible says he even sustains all of those things. It tells us that God pays attention to detail, right? Everything is unique. Nothing is alike. It tells us that God is a God of precision in His details. Even in the, in the creation of snowflakes, how intricate they are and unique they are from one another... And so it's it's in those things that I would look and say I love the outdoors because at every turn in nature we see these beautiful glimpses of God and His creativity and His power. I liked seeing the diversity among species. I can barely think of drawing a cow on a piece of paper and yet God can create all kinds of different species of animals and plant life even within species there's diversity right no two ants are the same no two leaves are the same god is very creative i think about all of creation serving a function everything in nature has a purpose to it trees give oxygen uh the United States faced a little bit of a crisis a few decades ago when they decided to remove wolves from Yellowstone National Park because even the, the existence of wolves in, a, in creation keeps everything in check and in balance. Everything serves a function. Everything operates seamlessly together with different aspects of creation. One thing that I am constantly amazed by every year, and this seems little insignificant, but I'm amazed that plants can freeze in the wintertime and still be alive in the springtime. I've got these ugly grass plants that I planted a few years ago in my flower bed, and every winter, at least once, every blade of that grass plant is coated in ice. And yet a few days later, it'll thaw and it's still green. It's still living. It's still growing. That amazes me I think about animals, and they don't have um, a a conscious choice like we do. They're not conscious creatures, and yet they have instincts to avoid danger. They have instincts to uh, procreate. In fact, some of them can even build things, and they're very good at survival. I think about even the seasons, winter, fall, summer, spring, those four seasons, and How they contribute to the cycle of life. They're vitally important to life on this planet. And you think even about life on this planet. And there's nothing else in in the universe like planet Earth. And we get to stroll through that creation every day. We get to enjoy nature in that regard every day. So nature fascinates me. I'm enthralled with it. I, I love To observe plants. I'm amazed that here's something that doesn't have a heartbeat, doesn't have a brain, and yet it has an element of life to it, and it grows, and it adapts, and it changes shapes, and it changes colors. That blows my mind. And I I think about even animals, like I said. But one animal I want to tell you about today it's a great and it's a mighty sea creature. And I think from its life we can glean an illustration. It is the salmon. Now, you wouldn't think of a salmon as a great mighty sea creature, but salmon are unique fish species. They have strange and unique and remarkable spawning habits. And we know of them because they are so remarkable. We often teach in elementary school the habits and lifestyles of this one singular fish, the salmon. And we talk about how unique their spawning habits are. In fact, few other... Species go through as much pain and hardship and difficult work to spawn and procreate as salmon do. They will travel upstream to lay their eggs. That's their natural habit. In fact, they'll travel many miles upstream at a very slow and arduous pace to lay their eggs. It's hard and laborious work. Because they are constantly, always swimming against the current. Against the flow of the river that they're in. Often swimming in shallow water. At times even parts of their body sticking out of the water. That's why bears like to grab them and eat on them. They swim in changing water conditions constantly. And they do this. They put in the hard work and they... They make the difficult trek upstream, miles upstream at a very slow pace because they know that is the optimal chance at success in hatching their eggs and their eggs surviving. And so they're willing to do the hard work of going against the current and enduring the difficulty. They know that's their best chance. They know that's their best option. They know that that is something They have to do to procreate. Well, you can see the illustration there, right? For the Christian life. We are a people meant to do the difficult work of living against the current. Going against the worldly expectations and the worldly standards. We live a life against the flow of the river while we're here on earth. It's not only our best chance at abundant life, it is that. It's not only our only option at a faithful, godly life, it is that. But it's really something we have to do if we're going to be like God and please God and be Christ-like in our existence. As Christians, we are called to a different standard, aren't we? We're called to a different kind of life. And because of that, we are to spend, however many years God gives us on this earth, we are to spend them living against the current of mainstream society. In other words, the world doesn't dictate for us anymore anything about our lives. In fact, as Christians, we're to be so against the current... And so against the stream that everything of our existence is dictated right here. In God's word. By his spirit. And that may be difficult. In fact, it is, isn't it? It may be gruesome. It may bring persecution and opposition. In fact, the Bible says it will. But that is nonetheless the master plan of God for the Christian life. To live against worldly expectations. To live a new and a different kind of life. With different morals. Different priorities. Different standards that we live by. Our lives are in different directions from from the unregenerate, unregenerate around us. We're to have different plans for our future we're to have different goals with our finances we are to have different definitions of words different desires in our hearts different joys different pleasures on and on and on and on we are to be entirely wholeheartedly different from the world in it but not of it among those around us but not like them We do things differently from those around us. Our leisure time is spent differently. And that often means living differently from those who are closest to us even. For some of us, we raise our kids differently than how we were raised. Because now we live under a different standard. For some of us, we are to work differently than our coworkers. We're not working for monetary gain. We're working for the glory of God. We're to take tests differently. We're to communicate with other human beings differently. Everything about our existence is to be different. We care about different things. We devote ourselves to different things. We live, ultimately, under a different governing standard than the rest of the world. The rest of the world is captive to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. We are children of God. We're not dictated by society. We're dictated by God. We no longer live under the influence of the world or we're not supposed to. We now live under the influence of God's kingdom. No matter the cost and no matter how different that may be from those around us. God says, this is my plan and my desire for you to have a godly life. And there's no debate. You want to know what abundant life is? As difficult as it may seem, it's living against the current of the world. That may bring hardship and that may bring difficulty, but let me tell you, it brings the greatest joys imaginable. Obedience to God brings a delight like nothing else in existence can. And God says, this is my plan, this is my desire for you even if it means you're different from your parents even if it means you're different from your spouse even if it means you're different from your friends you need better friends if it, even if it means you're different from your coworkers you are to be different you're to care about different things and be governed by different principles and and those things that the world deems as most important probably aren't going to matter to you at all as a Christian or shouldn't And that's really what we come to find in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Jesus is teaching us and reminding us of this new living standard that we're called to as Christians. We've talked a lot as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke of navigating the Christian life. How do we navigate this uh, existence that we are living right now where we're saved and yet not taken to heaven yet? We're, We're trying to be sanctified. We're trying to be New, we're trying to be a new creation, and yet we're trying to flesh that out while we live in this sinful world. But here's another text on navigating the Christian life. It's living under this new standard that God has called us to, to live against the current of the world and trust that God's plan and way is better. You know how difficult that is? When everybody around you says, This is pleasure, this is happiness, this is satisfaction. This is what you need to do with your life. This is how you need to spend your money. And God says, ignore all that and follow this. Follow me. That takes faith. That takes trusting God. Because there's a lot of difficulties that are going to lie ahead and a lot of rocks that have to be stepped over so that we can honor God with our lives. And yet, that is the greatest joy that lies ahead of us. That's what Christ is going to say in Luke 12. It's the greatest treasure imaginable. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Let's read the text this morning. And there's three things I want to try to bring out of these verses for us. Verse 13, Luke reports and says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And Jesus said to his disciples in that moment, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the bird's? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, how much more? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lot, going on in this text, very rich and profound passage of Scripture, the first thing that we want to bring out of it is from verses 13 through 21. It's the common trap of the world, a common trap. It's no secret we do live in a world of misplaced priorities and false pursuits of satisfaction. I'm convinced satisfaction is the greatest desire of humanity's heart. We do everything for the sake of satisfaction. I have kids because I think that will make me more satisfied. I get married because maybe that will satisfy me. We have this longing and this void that's in our hearts and unexplicable most of the time. And yet it's manifested in a yearning and a longing for satisfaction. So everything we do is for satisfaction. I'll be satisfied with my life. I'll be satisfied with my job. I'll be satisfied with where I live and on and on and on. That's the great concern of our hearts. And the world, not knowing the source of true satisfaction... Engages itself in many, many false pursuits. The world pursues many sinful things in the hopes of being satisfied. In fact, you and I commit sin out of the hope of being satisfied. The world will even corrupt good things of God, family, children, grandchildren, and misplace those priorities and try to make them instruments of satisfaction. False pursuits that will never come to fruition. That's what Christ is teaching against in this text. A false pursuit of satisfaction. That's the common trap that has spanned across time, across regions, across people groups, and it will continue to be the problem of humanity. A problem of humanity. We find that in the text here in verse 13. Even somebody back in Jesus's day is misplacing his priorities and Pursuing a false, false road of satisfaction. This man in verse 13 emerges from the crowd and he speaks up to Jesus and he's wanting Jesus to mediate his father's estate. Apparently, his dad has recently, somewhat recently, passed away. And he's in this dispute with his brother, and he wants Jesus to settle the matter. Well, in verse 14, the Lord must perceive a heart of covetousness in this man because not only does he refuse to mediate on his behalf, he also engages in this very clear teaching on the danger of materialism. If we could sum it down into one word, materialism. That is a possession-oriented life. That's what that word, word means. Where you place the wrong value on your possessions, you define your life based upon your possessions. Jesus perceives that's what the issue is for this man. He's willing to fight against his own family and fight against his own brother. And how familiar does that sound? For the sake of possessions, whether it be money or, or family heirlooms or, or even a house, something as significant as that, land and property, whatever it may be. He's willing to sacrifice a relationship with his brother, dispute, even try to bring Jesus into it so that he can have his stuff. Well, the Lord's not going to have that. And before he shares this parable with the crowd, he addresses them in verse 15 with a very clear statement. Take care, and it's a warning, be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life is more than your stuff. Life is more than what you have. Life is more than physical or material gain. It's more than the bank account. It's more than the closet full of junk that you haven't opened in years. It's more than the garage that's full of boxes that haven't been unpacked in years. It's more than all of this stuff. So covetousness is a danger that you need to guard against. Because the Lord knows humanity's heart. He knows that it will never be enough for you. If only I'll have more money and if only my bank account will be a little bit more cushioned and if only I'll have a better uh, Xbox or a better guitar or a better TV or, or whatever it may be, if only I'll have a little bit newer stuff and better stuff, then I'll be satisfied, probably, maybe, probably not. And so Jesus says life is more than stuff. It's more than the stuff that you have. It's more than the stuff that you could have be on guard because many people fall into that snare. Right. That's what Christ is saying. Watch out. Because you might be found to be like everybody else in the world. Led down a road of lies. But it's certainly not very difficult to see the immediate application of that statement, is it? In fact, we all see ourselves right there we all can stop and say, okay, Jesus, you're speaking to me. You're reminding me life's more than stuff. Well, even Christians today fall captive to that lie, don't they? That's why this passage needs to be preached. That's why this passage needs to be laid before us as a church to, to warn us, because even Christians today fall captive to this lie the lie that success and enjoyment of life is found in the abundance of our possessions. That is the mantra of the world. In fact, we even look down and pity third world countries because they don't have enough stuff. The motto of life is success is found in how much you have. Enjoyment is found in how much you have. In fact, that has so penetrated our thinking over the years, I would contend, and was sharing earlier this week this very thought, that people even choose churches that they attend based on that principle. I'm going to this church, and I'm going to visit this church first because they have a real nice building and lots of resources and lots of programs that they offer me and my family and a lot to choose from. And the nicest this and the nicest that. I've often wondered how many people would leave our fellowship if we stripped it all down to four walls and a few chairs. If the stage was cleared, the sound equipment was gone, the, the fellowship hall was not existent, all of those things removed, the toys for the children removed. I mean, I, I know we don't offer a whole lot anyways, but if we take all of that away and it's four walls, a few chairs, some of you are sitting on the floor, and all we have is a Bible, is that going to be enough? Because most of the world even measures the places that they go to church based on the fact of, Possession-oriented lifestyles. In fact, most people gauge the success and health of a church based on possession. They must be doing well because their bank account is big. And they must be doing well because their building is nice. And on and on and on. They must be doing well because they have a whole lot of programs to offer. We are a people who are falling and buying into the lie that success is measured by abundance. And here's Christ saying that is foolishness. It's foolish. It's backwards. It's deceitful. And yet, even us sitting here today, most of our lives have become defined by this desire to own a bunch of stuff and have a bunch of stuff. Like I said, we measure success by our abundance of possessions. We choose our churches by that principle. We think that's the very purpose of our vocational work as Christians. I'm just working to make more money, to build a shed or update my house or buy a new car. We even think that's what is necessary to give our children or our grandchildren a a good childhood or, or set them on the path of success and hope for their future. We think if we give them all the opportunities in the world, that then maybe they'll turn out all right. This lie is so crept into us, and yet here's Jesus again saying it's not that at all. Contrary to what the world is telling you, and contrary to even how you're living, life is more than stuff. So verse 16, He begins to share a parable. And He's telling us of a man who is already rich, who just happened to increase in his wealth. He's already defined as a rich man. In fact, we don't have his name. Jesus doesn't give location. Jesus doesn't even really give occupation in specifics. But he does tell us the man is rich and he's going to uh, increase his supply, increase his wealth. You'll notice this man's wealth increases based on something outside of his control, really. His land produces plentifully. His land yields a good year of crops. Whatever those crops may be, it's not important to the parable. Now, I'm sure if this man is a farmer, as we can safely conclude that he is, he's probably done the same kind of preparation, the same kind of diligent work for his crops in years prior. Maybe even decades, he's been doing this same work, and then all of a sudden this year, the land produces plentifully. And so his wealth increases. His wealth increases outside and separate from really anything he can do. And yet, verse 17 and, and through the rest, verse 19 of this man speaking, one commentator observed that his his phrasing and what he has to say in this parable is really a doxology of praise to himself. It's filled with personal pronouns. So he says in verse 17, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 19 is really where we get a glimpse into the man's heart. He addresses his own soul. And he's essentially saying, Now I can be satisfied. Now I can relax. Now I can enjoy life, eat and drink and be merry. Maybe this was the man's goal for many years to accure this amount of wealth that he's just fallen into. And he says, Now, now that all this has happened, I'm good. Jesus says that's foolishness. Even calls the man a fool in verse 20. Now why does God address him as a fool? Is it because he built bigger barns to store his grain? No. That's actually an act of wisdom, isn't it? Planning ahead. God doesn't condemn planning ahead. Is it because he had a good crop yield. No. In fact, that would be a blessing because that was outside of his control. We might even call that a blessing of the Lord. What about the fact that he's wealthy? Is it his wealth that God is calling him a fool for? No, not necessarily. Abraham was a wealthy man. King David, King Solomon, even... Mentioned in this text was a wealthy man. Why does God look at him and say, you're a fool? It's because this man had measured his life by his wealth. Measured and planned his whole existence based on wealth. He thought he could be satisfied based on wealth. Jesus says that's a foolish, foolish existence. And here's why, verse 20, because your soul is required of you. And your wealth in that moment is worthless. All your possessions are for nothing in that moment. On that night when your soul is required of you. It won't amount to anything. What happens when you die? Whose possessions will they be then? Whose wealth will it be then? This man cannot take it with him. In fact, it benefits Him in no way in the life to come. It does not determine, even in the slightest way, His standing before God. It will either be spoiled or distributed to others. He will base His life upon it. He will seek satisfaction in it. And in the end, He doesn't get to keep an ounce of it. Jesus asks the glaring question, which answer is very clear at the end of verse 20, whose will they be? And the answer is, not yours. Your kids will one day, those whom you probably love the most outside your spouse, your own children, will one day bury you, stand in your house and say, what do I do with all this junk? These things that were valuable possessions to you, that meant the world to you, that were treasures to you, will be trash to your children who have to spend money and time throwing it away and getting rid of it. Possessions amount to nothing. And how countercultural cultural is that to the world? Don't fall into the lie, church, of living your whole existence here on earth and pursuing with everything you have possessions. It means nothing. It adds up to nothing. You might think that you're satisfied in your stuff today, but you will be in debt in your life to come. And Jesus says, that's the fate of everybody who lays up treasure for themselves on earth and is not rich toward God. What a wonderful way of saying that in verse 21, isn't it? What a beautiful way of saying that. You can be incredibly wealthy. You can have all the abundance of possessions of everything your heart ever desired here on earth and not be even in the slightest way rich toward God. Jesus uses this word treasure to refer specifically to earthly things in verse 21. You can have all the treasure your heart desires, but you won't be rich. And when he talks about being rich towards God, he's talking about a relationship with God. He'll reference it again in verse 34. That's what the greatest treasure is, a relationship with God. Richness towards God means being righteous through Jesus Christ. Which means having saving faith. Which is the greatest inheritance possible which is in heaven, kept for us by God, the greatest wealth humanity could ever know. First Peter talks about this wealth. Let me flip over there so I don't get it wrong. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and verse 4, and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As Christians, we don't have to live under the influence of this world, we're able to live contrary and against the current of society because we have a greater wealth. You don't have to spend your life chasing after vain things that are going to rot and be thrown away by your own children. There's a greater wealth that is right there for the taking. That belongs to the child of God. It's the inheritance of every Christian. You belong to Christ. You are wealthy. If you're rich toward God, that is all that matters. And yet, how often do we spend our time pursuing vain possessions? Let me tell you something. Christ is telling us, forget all that rubbish and do the diligent, disciplined, hard work of training yourself in godliness. That is of real value. Pursue Christ. That's of real value. In fact, he's going to go on in this text, and we won't cover it today, but he's going to go on in the rest of this text saying, Jesus, your relationship with God is even more valuable than necessary things like food and clothing. Don't get caught up and hung up in the lie of the world. What matters is the wealth that really matters, is whether or not God thinks you're rich. Would God say all your possessions matter? Obviously not. What God says matters is your relationship to Christ. Let us hear the warning of our Lord. And let us hear it with such passion and such conviction. Because this church is the grip. Not only of our world. But most notably of our country. Praise God we live here. We're born in the time we were born in because we get to easily and freely hear the gospel. Praise God for that. But the thing that has gripped us so much is this false pursuit of satisfaction in vain possessions. This passage is incredibly, incredibly important because this is our country's vice. This is what you are living in. This is what our children are growing up in. This is what our grandchildren are growing up in. This mentality that success and enjoyment is found in your stuff, God says that is totally wrong. Success and enjoyment is found in your walk with God. How vastly different are the two? Oh, if we as a church spent an ounce of the energy that we do pursuing vain possessions, if we spend an ounce of that in growth and godliness, if we spend an ounce of it in evangelism, if we just spend an ounce of it in exercising our spiritual gifts to serve the Lord through the church, where would we be right now? What joy would be in our hearts? What satisfaction would belong to us? What purpose and fulfillment? How different would things in life be? They may be, still be difficult. We may have oppression and opposition and persecution, but we will know no greater delight than that. Where would we be? How full would our hearts get? What kind of joy lays just on the horizon if we say, you know what? Together we commit to... To get rid of that junk, quit following that plan and start following God and put all of our efforts and all of our resources and all of our pursuits in godliness and Christ-likeness and walking with God in faith. Where would we be then, church? And I tell you, I can promise you from the Word of God that we would be in a great place of satisfaction. A great place of hope. A great place of fulfillment and of joy and of unity and of love. And we might even, by God's infinite grace, be blessed to see many souls converted among us, around us, those whom we love and know. We just took an ounce of the energy that we put forth in saving up money for this or that and applied it to witnessing. Sharing the gospel? Don't you think God would look and say, they may not have much, but Trinity Baptist Church is rich. Rich toward me. Rich in my eyes. That's the wealth that matters, church. It comes down to this. All the security that the world may feel right now in their possessions to face their future, all of it will vanish instantly in the eyes of God when they stand before Him. They may feel comfortable and they may feel set for the future and they may feel set to face any difficulty. They may be able to place their, replace their water heater when it goes out of their home and that may bring them a lot of security and a lot of comfort, but all of that will instantaneously be ripped away when they are required of their soul and stand before God. And in that moment, the only thing that matters is what God thinks about your wealth. And let me tell you what God thinks is rich. Again, one more time. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is saying, coming to the end of yourself, and saying with great humility, and great godly grief, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot save myself. I will never be good enough. My only hope is Jesus Christ. Paul says at the end of... 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, He says, Behold, today is a favorable, favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Come to God while mercy is available. While we live in the age of grace where God freely extends His arms so that any of us can have real, eternal wealth in Christ. God will count you as very rich if you are covered in the blood of Jesus. And in that place, there is therefore now no condemnation. And oh, Christian here this morning, you already are saved by God. The Holy Spirit indwells you, Romans 8, bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. If that's you, let us today commit together. Although we may be imperfect at it, let us say we're going to walk together in this Christian life according to the master plan of God and no longer pursue and be defined by worldly expectations. We're going to be the salmon of the Christian church go against the current, go against the stream because we know that's where true delight is found. That's what God has in store. And we trust God. Jesus is going to go on to talk in this text of why we can face uh, opposition, why we can go against the current. It's all grounded in the person of God. Why can we now not care about the abundance of possessions in this world and only care about eternal treasure? It's because we know God. He's a loving Father, He cares for us, nurtures us, He provides for us, all of those things. Let us be a people who know God and pursue richness in Him. Lord, I thank You for Your Word this morning because in it we see how to live this life as You would have us to live And it's not in the pursuit of worldly vain things, God. And I I don't know, Lord, I spend so much time, I guess, on these few verses because I I see them in my own heart, God. I see them in my own life. How often? How often, God, have I spent so much time in vain plans for a new this or a greater this or a bigger that. I stand here convicted this morning, God, by Your Word because what if I just took an ounce of my time and devoted it to evangelism? Or Bible study? Or training in godliness? Or repenting and confessing sin? God, help us. We get our priorities backwards. God, help us. We... Fall victim to false pursuits of satisfaction. God, help us. We measure our entire lives by junk. Oh, help us to be kingdom people. Rich toward You. Living by a new standard. New desires. Let us care less and less about what the world thinks and more and more about what You think. Let us be poor in the eyes of the world and rich in Your eyes. Let us value Jesus and let us value a walk and a relationship with You far more than we value anything in this world. Let our resources, our energy, our efforts, our time be spent chasing after You and not the vain things of this world. God, this is a lesson we all need to know and learn and live by. Would You help us Please. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.